John chapter 4, verse 43, up to John chapter 5, verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there, who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who he was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. When we read the Bible... Old Testament or New Testament, we may have uh, an experience of saying to ourselves, I wish I could have seen that. Especially when there are these these miraculous things that happen, the the parting of the Red Sea or the the provision of, of manna in the wilderness or the confrontation between uh, the, the prophet Elijah and the, the hundreds of prophets of Baal when God answers by, by fire, uh, or perhaps the, 
the uh, of the New Testament, uh, the, the healing of the blind or the, the multiplication of bread. And, and, and we have had uh, attempts in movies to portray these things, but they always fall short. And, and we, we would say to ourselves, I wish I could have seen that. And we have in the back of our minds probably this idea. At, at this distance, sometimes these things seem to be fabulous. That is to say, of fables. They seem to be uh, far away. They seem to be perhaps impossible. They seem to be unreal. And if we could just see them with our own eyes, then our faith would be stronger. We would be certain. We would be sure. And nothing would shake us. But if we think like that, we run aground on a stubborn fact that runs through the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that is this. Many who saw these things with their own eyes did not believe. And we find that in Jesus' ministry as well. And we find that that, that is a, an important theme that runs through the Gospel of John. That Jesus does what are called in the Gospel of John, signs... And they point to who Jesus is. They point to who God is. They point to the meaning of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. But they are not the thing in itself. They are signs. They are pointers. And there, there is a, a, an ambiguous relationship between the signs and real belief in Jesus. And we see that in the two incidents of today because we have a sign performed in Galilee... And there was faith that accompanied that and actually preceded it. And then we have back in Jerusalem, another sign is performed, maybe the the most impressive sign up to this point in the gospel, and yet there is no evidence of faith in response to that sign. So let's look at these signs and look at how they function and how they are unable to function sufficiently in and of themselves to produce faith. The first one uh, is back in Galilee. Now, we uh, have in, in the Gospel of John more information about the Judean ministry than we have in the other three Gospels. The other three Gospels tend to focus on the northern ministry in Galilee, but in John, he's going back and forth some four times between Galilee and Judea. And we recall from last week that he was going from Jerusalem in the south up to Galilee in the north, and he had to pass through Samaria. And that's where he had the encounter with the Samaritan woman. And he spent then two days at the Samaritan town. And we read, we read last week, that many of them believed. Many of the Samaritans believed because of her word, the woman's word, and then because they met Jesus himself. After these two very fruitful days in Galilee, it says in verse 43 of chapter 4, that he went once again up to Galilee. Now, the Galileans, it says in verse 45, uh, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. And this is very positive. Uh, They welcomed him, and it says, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. And if we wonder what feast was that, we remember what Jesus did when He he was in Jerusalem at the feast. you remember? He cleaned the temple. He drove out the the flea market, the the market uh, that was set up in the temple courts. And the Galileans apparently had seen that, and they were applauding that. 
because there was some sort of rivalry between Galilee, which was the province, and the capital, which was Jerusalem. And so that one of their own, as they considered Jesus, would take it to those in the capital who were profaning the temple. The Galileans thought that was a pretty good thing, that that one of their own Galileans had taken it straight to the, the temple leaders and cleansed the temple. They had seen that. And apparently he did other signs there that are not recorded. So they welcomed him. But between verses 43 and 45, there is a parenthetical statement that doesn't seem to fit well in this context. But it is an ominous statement that is, is hinting about what is going to happen in the future. And it says this, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. And then it seems curious that it says that the Galileans welcomed him, which looks like he's getting honored in his own home territory. But this parenthetical statement is wedged in there as a contrast between the reception he received in Samaria and the reception he would receive in Galilee and Judea eventually. Although there is an initial enthusiasm for Jesus in Galilee, we will see and we have the hint that that will change as well. So the first incident, incident is in, in Galilee, and it says he came to Cana, verse 46. Do you remember what he did in Cana? Well, you don't have to remember, because it says right here what he did. Verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made water wine. That was back in chapter 2. Now, uh, there was a town on the lake on the Sea of Galilee. It's a lake called the Sea of Galilee. And that was down uh, in, in latitude, in altitude, from Cana. And it was also 16 and a half miles. So 16 and a half miles away in Capernaum, there was what's called a royal official. A royal official whose son was ill. Still verse 46. This man heard that Jesus was in Cana. So he traveled those 16 and a half miles, which is about from Atlantic Boulevard to Atlantic Avenue in Del Rey. So he traveled that distance, whether on foot or in some sort of beast of burden, but he traveled that distance because he wanted to ask Jesus to come heal his son. Now, we don't know why he had the idea that Jesus could do that. Because up to this point in Galilee, we have no record of Jesus healing anybody. Now, we don't know why, but he thought that Jesus could heal his son. But he assumed that the only way he could do it was by going with him. And so that was his his request. He asked him to come down, come down from Cana to Galilee, uh, to uh, Capernaum and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now, there's a parallel here between what happens here and what happened the last time in Cana of Galilee. Do you remember that somebody tried to involve Jesus in an affair that was not his, his mother? And what did he do? He rebuffed her, and then she persisted. That's the same thing that happens here. So he tries to involve him in his family situation. Jesus rebuffs him, and then he persists. So another, another, the same pattern repeated. But look at his rebuff. If you look at verse 48, it says, So Jesus said to him, Unless you... Now, in your version, there may be a footnote, there may be a little number there that points you down to the footnotes. And this you is you plural. You plural. So he's rebuffing this man, but he's treating this man 
as an example of a larger group. And in the context, he's speaking to you Jews. Of course, Jesus was a Jew, but he's speaking to uh, fellow Jews. And he says, unless you all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. You will not believe. So he was pointing out a characteristic of his own people that they insisted on seeing signs and wonders in order to believe. So for them, seeing was believing. Seeing was necessary in order to believe. And we will see that throughout this this gospel, this this question of seeing and believing. And then he he persisted, even though Jesus had, had put him off. In verse 49, the official said to him, Sir, come down. Before my child dies. So in desperation, he pleads with Jesus to come down. Jesus didn't go with him. But in verse 50, Jesus told him to go and simply said, Your son lives. He just made the declaration. Your son lives. Now, look at verse 50. This is remarkable because it says, The man believed what? What's it say? The word. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And there's, there's indication that he really believed because he didn't persist. He didn't say, no, 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 I, I want you to come down so that you can be there and touch him and heal him. He simply believed the word that Jesus spoke and he went away. So he believed the word without having yet seen the sign. And then he went on his way, and he did not get there until the next day. Because this would have been a 31-mile round trip, which even for an experienced hiker is, is a pretty good trip walking. And if he had been on a beast of burden, well, he probably would have come very fast on that beast of burden to get there, and it would have been worn out. So he gets back the next day. And as he was going down to Capernaum, down to the edge of the lake, his servants were coming up to meet him. And they said, your son lives. And then he asked them, could you tell me what time it was when he began to get better? And they said that it was about the seventh hour, which is probably one in the afternoon. And then the father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had simply spoken at a distance, your son lives. And look at the response. The response in, in verse 53. And he himself believed in all his household. So in his case, we have faith, sign, and then more faith. He had faith in Jesus' word, and the sign, when he saw it or heard of it, that confirmed his faith, and he believed and his household believed as well. In verse 54, it says, This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. The first sign was changing water into wine. second sign was this healing of the man's son at a distance. Now, it's interesting that John would, would number these signs because he doesn't number any more. We would think that he would go through the whole gospel numbering these, but he just numbers one and two. And he had already done signs in, in Judea, but it looks like this is the second sign that he did in Galilee. In Galilee. Now, um, the first sign in Cana, we should compare these. 
Because if we go back and look at the first sign in Cana of Galilee, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 11, we see what the response was. It says that this, the first, uh, chapter 2, verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Why did they believe in him? Because they saw the sign. And then, if we look at what Jesus did in Jerusalem, in chapter 2, verse 23 and following, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw what? The signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So we have two occasions of belief on the basis of signs, and we look at the disciples' faith, and it was, it was a, an immature faith. It was a, a, a faith that was not yet well formed. And then we see the, the belief of the multitude. And the belief of the multitude was even less confident or, or, or trustworthy, and Jesus didn't trust in their faith. They believed in Him, but He didn't believe in them. And that was the sign so far, what they had produced. Now, we have an advance when we get to chapter 4. This is progress, isn't it? Because we have another sign, but what do we have? We have faith that preceded the sign. The man believed what? The Word. The Word. And so this man is, is an example of one who believes the Word without yet seeing the sign. So this is progress. Now, after that, Jesus goes back to Jerusalem. Chapter 5. It says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. This feast is not named... Some people think it was the Passover. If so, there are four Passovers in the Gospel of John. I'm thinking it probably wasn't uh, the Passover. But the only reason it's mentioned here is to, to locate Jesus in Jerusalem again. But it was one of the, the three annual feasts in which they, the Jews went up to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, it explains that there was a pool called Bethesda. And it had five roofed colonnades. And archaeologists think they have identified the site of this near St. Anne's Church. Um, and what the belief was, was that the pool, the waters of the pool, they apparently believed that these waters had healing powers. And that when they were stirred, if you could get into the pool, that uh, you would be healed. And there was a man there, and he was among a multitude of people who had different kinds of lesions and infirmities. It says the, the blind, the lame the paralyzed, and he was at least lame, perhaps paralyzed. And he had been there, it says, for 38 years. 38 years lying by the pool. And somehow Jesus knew that. Now, we don't know how Jesus knew that. Jesus had grown up going to Jerusalem. Jesus was in his 30s. It may be that Jesus, all his life, had seen this man lying by the pool. Or it may be that this is an example of, of Jesus' divine knowledge and he knew that the man had been there for a long time. And then he asked him what seems like an obvious question. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? That seemed like a very obvious question. The man actually didn't answer the question. He simply explained or maybe complained about why he was still there. And this is where we get the idea of the, the popular belief. 
He says, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going down, another steps down before me. Can you imagine? 38 years of waiting to get into the pool first, and somebody beats you every single time? And Jesus then simply said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And the remarkable thing is that the man was at once healed and somehow knew he was healed in his body, and he got up, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Then there is a little line here at the end of verse 9 that says, Now, that day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews saw this man walking through Jerusalem on a feast day, Uh, at the feast, but it was a Sabbath day near the feast, and he was carrying his mat, probably rolled up, folded up, and he was carrying it because that's what Jesus told him to do. And they saw him, and they said, what you're doing is unlawful on the Sabbath day, carrying your bed, your mat. Now, if you go to the Old Testament and you read the Sabbath laws, you find that the Sabbath laws were focused on being a blessing to humans. Because they said you can have one day in which you don't have to do your normal labors. And that's what was the focus. You don't do your normal work on that day. You're free to to rest from whatever your job is on that day. And that was a gift. That was a gift to the Jews. They could rest on that day. But over the centuries... And by the time of Jesus, people had, had uh, added, the religious leaders had added rules, man-made rules, to this basic concept of resting from your normal labors on the Sabbath day. And they had defined very, very specifically what was work. Uh, how many steps you could take, what you could carry. You, and, uh, you could, could not carry a bed unless there was somebody on it. Then you could carry a bed if somebody was on it, but you couldn't carry the bed by itself. And they, they got down to the nitty-gritty details in an amazingly precise way of what was work and what wasn't work. And they saw this man and they said, that is definitely work. We know that's work. And they said, you're not allowed to do that. Now, the man who had been healed immediately was frightened, and he blamed the one who had healed him. He said, I'm just acting on the authority of the man who healed me. He told me to do this. He told me to carry my, my bed. And they asked him, well, who is it? And he said, I don't know, because he didn't know who he was, because Jesus had nodded off with the crowd after he had performed this sign. But then Jesus took the initiative for the second time with this man. In verse 14, chapter 5, he said, it says, Afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. This is a bit cryptic, but it's, it's a fascinating instruction to this man. He says, you are well, but he says, sin no more. And that indicates one thing. There are a couple things that this statement indicates, but the first thing it indicates is this. If you have received God's grace, if you have received God's mercy, that should change the way you live your life. 
And that is a message that needs to be heard in every generation. And every, uh, every believer needs to hear that message. If you are a recipient, a recipient of God's mercy, of God's grace, then your life should be different. It should not be characterized by sin anymore. But there's another thing that this verse indicates, and that is, sometimes... Bad things happen to us because of our sin. Now, we'll get in chapter 9 to a very uh, interesting parallel situation, a man who was born blind. And in that situation, Jesus denies that his blindness had to do with his sin or his parents' sin. So, he indicates there that not in every case is is sickness or death or calamity a result of someone's sin. But here he says, stop sinning so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The implication is that there was sin behind this calamity that had overcome this man. Now, we can certainly say that in general, can't we? We can say, if there were no sin in the world, there would be no sickness in the world. And as we'll see in chapter 9, not all sickness is caused by sin, but here he gives a warning to the man. Sin no longer. Don't continue to live in sin so that nothing worse may happen to you. But this is ambiguous as well. Nothing worse may happen to you when? What's the worst thing that can happen to this man? Is it that he would not be able to walk again? Or is it something after his death that Jesus is pointing to. So this is a, a very, as I say, it's a, it's a curious statement. It doesn't give a lot of information, but it, it has some very strong implications here about sickness and sin and the consequences of sin. And, positively speaking, if we have received God's grace, how we are to say no to sin and live in a different way than we had in the past. And what did the man do? After being told, sin no longer, so nothing worse happens to you. He went away with these legs that Jesus himself had just restored to him. He used this body that just Jesus had just given him back. And he went immediately, apparently, and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And it says that the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Now, we don't know what that looked like, what kind of persecution that was. But he was, they were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. What things? Well, at least two things. He was healing on the Sabbath, and that was work. And he was telling people to carry their mat on the Sabbath, and so he was corrupting others by teaching them to break the Sabbath in their minds. Now, Jesus responded with an argument in verse 17. Jesus answered them, and he said, My father is working until now. And I am working. And what he did in this argument, he had two premises. The first premise, the Jews would have affirmed and said, Amen. The second premise, they rejected, and so they rejected the conclusion. The first premise was this, and this was debated among the Jews and discussed among the Jews. Does God work on the Sabbath? And they responded affirmatively saying, Yes, God works on the Sabbath. And why do they conclude that? Because if He didn't work on the Sabbath, 
the universe would have a very hard time continuing to exist. So God sustains all things, and they knew that. And so if God didn't do anything on the Sabbath, then everything would fall apart. So they affirmed that God works on the Sabbath. He doesn't create anymore. He created in those first six days, but now He rests from the creation. But He continues in His providence to sustain all things on the Sabbath day. They would have said, Amen. But Jesus had the audacity to do something that Jews did not do by calling God my Father. Jews would sometimes, in in addressing God, refer to our Father, that is the Father of the Jewish nation, of the Israelites, but they would not dare to say, my Father. And, And Jesus said, my Father is working now, And I am working. So what's the second premise that Jesus lays out in this argument? The second premise is this. That he had a unique relationship with God as son to father. And that relationship gave to Jesus the same authority that the father had. The same prerogatives that the father had. And the conclusion is what? If the Father has the authority, uh, the freedom to work on the Sabbath, and the Son sustains a relationship to the Father that gives Him that same sort of freedom and authority, then the Son can work on the Sabbath as well. This is interesting because you might have thought He would have defended His action on mercy grounds and said, and he does this elsewhere in the, in the other Gospels, defending it by saying, please, come on. If, you're, if your animal falls into a hole, you'll get him out on the Sabbath day. Isn't it, isn't it better that, that on the Sabbath day this man be healed? But he did not do that here. He made a, a much bigger argument, not just appealing to mercy, but appealing to who he was. And this was not lost on the Jews. And it says in verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was, and he was breaking their Sabbath laws, but in their mind, he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Now, we will hear Jesus' response to this accusation next week. We'll get his response to this accusation that he was making himself equal with God. But uh, for now, what we can see is this. That this sign that Jesus gave here in Jerusalem, and his explanation of the sign, and his explanation to the healed man, we see that the sign was pointing to why Jesus had come. And that was to take away sin that causes sickness and worse things as well. You see, that was wrapped up in the sign. Let me ask you something. Why did Jesus choose this man? There's no indication in the text that there was any faith in this man before Jesus approached him. Nor is there any indication in this text that there was any faith in this man after Jesus healed him. Why did he choose this man? Well, he did a sign. 
And what do signs do? They point beyond themselves. To what was he pointing? He was pointing to the fact that he had come to take away sin that causes sickness and causes worse things beyond that as well. And the response of the Pharisees, the Jews, to him indicates how he would eventually do that. What did they want to do to Jesus? They wanted to kill him. And so we're only in chapter 5, and already we have the shadow of the cross casting its, its, its shadow, the cross casting its shadow forward into the narrative. And we have this mention that the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. And if we put these together, even in this text, we find hints, not clearly stated yet, that Jesus' death would be the means by which He would take away sin that causes sickness and worse things as well. But we should reflect on this sign here, and signs in general, because, once again, we don't know why He chose this man. It didn't seem to work, did it? This sign in the man's case. But what what was Jesus doing here? Was He simply concerned about the man? He obviously was. But we see that He was giving a sign. And He maybe chose this man. And He maybe chose this day, the Sabbath day. He could have done it a day before. He could have done it a day after. The effect would have been saying the same for the man. He may have chose this as another deliberate confrontation and provocation to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, even as he had done when he cleansed the temple. He cleansed the temple and he challenged the Sadducees, who were the temple authorities. He, he healed this man on the Sabbath. He challenged the Pharisees, who were the, the guardians of the law. But both of these had fallen into man-made religious stipulations. And Jesus was challenging both of them. At any rate, this healed man shows, as many examples throughout Scripture show, that seeing is not necessarily believing. This man had not just seen, he felt, he experienced, perhaps the most impressive sign up to this point in this Gospel narrative. And there is no indication that he had any faith in Jesus. But it's even worse because the religious leaders, they knew that man had been there for 38 years as well. They had seen this man there for all these years, unable to walk, unable to get around. And about what were they concerned when they saw this man walking around after 38 years of paralysis? What what was their only concern? That he was carrying his mat on the Sabbath day. That was, that was what they were focused on. No, no mercy. No rejoicing over the fact that this man's life had been given back to him. They were only concerned that he was carrying his mat. Something had gone, gone desperately wrong in the religion of these people. And then it gets worse. Because they were willing to do what? We don't know if it was the same day or not. But when they began to persecute Jesus and began to plan His death, 
What were they willing to do? They were willing to violate the commandment, Thou shalt not kill, at the same time upholding their version of the fourth commandment, that you shall not carry a mat on the Sabbath day. You see what had happened to their religion? It had been so overrun with these man-made additions that they were missing the essence of the faith they professed. And so they serve as a warning to us. They serve as a warning to us because this is what happens. This is what happens when our our faith becomes built on, on things other than the Word of God. This is what happens when we either add to, as they had done, or take away from the teaching of Scripture. If we we add to and we forbid things that the Scripture allows, then we have made up a new religion. Or, if we take away and we permit that which the Scripture forbids, we have also veered off from the faith that we profess And we have made up our own religion. And that is a danger in all ages and in all days because it is easier, it is easier and more comfortable and in some ways more satisfying to our pride and our ego to come up with our little rules that we ourselves can fulfill and then fulfill them and check them off and judge others for not being as righteous as we. That's very smugly self-satisfying. But if we have to focus on Scripture and commands like this, sin no more. Or, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Those are big. Those are overarching. Those are tall orders that will consume all of our lives. Not just a comfortable checklist. Now, if we had been present as witnesses... And we had seen the man, son in Capernaum healed at the word of Jesus. Or if we had been there that day at the pool and we had seen Jesus say to this man, Arise, take up your mat and walk. Maybe we would have believed in Jesus. Or maybe we would have been like most of the people there. We would have seen the sign, but not believed in the reality to which the sign was pointing. You see, signs are helpful. Jesus did them. But signs point to the reality. Later on, Paul would characterize humanity in two groups. He said there are two groups, Jews being in one group and Greeks being in another, but they're representative One group, as Jesus noted here, they seek signs, they seek miracles, they seek power demonstrations, and then they'll believe. And then the Greeks and the other ones who are like them, they seek intellectually satisfying arguments. And if they can be convinced in their mind with with highfalutin reasoning, then they will believe. But the problem is neither the signs produce faith, nor the reasoning produces faith. What produces faith? Faith comes by hearing, Paul says. And hearing what? The Word of God. The Word of Christ. 
That's how Paul said it. He says, Jews seek signs. And Greeks, they look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. This is, this is weakness to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. But to those who believe, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so, my friends, we have something better. Rather than longing that we might be there, that we might be able to see, we have something even better. We have the word of the cross that has been preached to us and conserved for us in human language that we might hear that word about the crucified Savior and believe and live. Let's pray. Our God, we are creatures that are easily impressed by what we see, and then we can walk away and forget what we saw. And it's easy for us to look at these folks and wonder at their unbelief and their obtuseness and their, their focus on little things when you were doing a grander thing, but we recognize that we are often like that. And we pray, O oh God, that you would open the eyes of our souls, that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to believe, that we might be like that man whose son was dying who heard Your Word and believed it. Lord, I pray for all of us to believe the Word of the cross today, that Christ was crucified for the sins of those who trust in Him, and that believing we would be forgiven and that our lives would be transformed. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.